Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. G'day everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Pod once again. My name is Matt Walsh, I'm joined by Jake Michaels and champion dad is Christian Jolly here in the ESPN studios in Melbourne. Bit to touch on this week, including some flopping, the Dockers' strong return to form, and after last week we looked at the league's most improved players. This week we'll take a look at the players who aren't performing up to their usual lofty standards. My favourite. Jake, welcome to you, how are you? Going well, Matt, how are you? Uh, not too bad. Now, Christian... I've got a question for you off the top. Normally I throw a curly one at Jake off the top, but this week I'm going to go to you. This last couple of weeks we've had Liam Jones, Nick Blakey, Darcy Moore, James Sicily. Give the record for intercept marks a bit of a nudge. Now, is it recency bias or are we starting to see more and more intercept marks than we have before? Yeah, definitely there's been more uh, coming into the game. So even the current leader, Charlie Ballard, uh, I think on track at the moment to break the record. I think he's over four intercept marks per game, which would be the most... The record for, the, for a the season. Hi- the highest average across the season. Um, I think it's around three, just under four per game. Is, so he's, That's an interesting one. Just to, sorry to cut you off, but is, is the record that you guys see average per game or just total? Oh, both. I mean, halfway through the season, it's good to go average per game. If he keeps this up, it'll be the most, the highest average. But once we get to the end of the season, we can use totals or averages, depending mm. on, on, on what you so want you to use. So you look at big games, like we talk about how Moore had 11 and then it got brought back to 10. But the average to break the record would be four per game. Yeah, across the season. So exactly, yeah. So seeing... I feel like we're seeing a lot more games from defenders, in particular, obviously, where they're getting eight, nine every couple of weeks. Yep, and I feel like it's it's part of football. I mean, we spoke about it early in the season. I think that was a big game trend for me early in the season is kicking was back. I think kick-to-handball ratio is up to about 1.9 kicks for every handball. We've been down to 1.2, 1.3 um, back five or six years ago, so very handball-heavy uh, type game. But we're back to playing football, which I like, and kicking it. But I think also the philosophy from teams is I think we're we're sort of seeing all the best markers in the competition play behind the ball. So I know growing up as a kid, you always thought about the best markers in the com- in the competition were your centre half forward or your ruckman that would go forward and, and pluck a few marks. I think the best overhead players in the competition at the moment are, are holding down key position spots down back, and I think up forward you're looking for more athletic types. Uh, you know, and, and guys that can probably get out on a lead and got the forward smarts. Whereas, yeah, if, you, if you're strong in the air, and I think it all started, probably Jeremy McGovern was one of the first. I mean, I know Brian Lake or Brian Harris didn't start as a forward, but he was just a dominant aerial player. But now if you look at the best marks in the competition, guys like Jake Lever, Darcy Moore, um, and, you know, and then the guys that I've already mentioned, they're, they're all playing down back now. Is it a mentality thing, Jake, where you're a forward and you, you're feeling obligated to obviously take these marks and kick these goals? You've got a lot to think about. Taking the mark is half the, half the job, I guess, for a, for a key forward in particular. Whereas mm. that's kind of the main aim if you're an intercept defender. If you're, you're Tom Stewart, you're probably told, see ball, get ball. Do you think it's easy in terms of the mentality and your positioning to be a defender who takes intercept marks? I don't know, but I think there's more pressure on the forwards now because we have, as Christian said, there are so many of these guys that are capable of doing it and do it week in, week out, that there is pressure on the forwards to not... It's not only now mark the ball and kick goal. It's don't allow your opposition to intercept. And we always talk about a lot of different statistical sort of metrics and measures. You know, do clearances equate to winning games of football or hitouts? Intercept marks. You know, I'd love to know. Maybe that's something we can get get later in the the episode. Where do intercept marks sort of fit in? You mm. win the intercept mark count. How does that go in terms of winning the game of football? I think it'd be lowish, just because again, an intercept mark relies on the opposition having the ball first as well. So 
again, probably in terms of a team winning metric, it won't be great. But in terms of your know, player value and, you know, and 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 the value you're getting out of your players playing in defence, one are they stopping goals, but two are they also launching attacks for us? Is probably the big key. Mm, interesting. Uh, maybe that is something we can do a bit of a deeper dive on, if not this week, uh, in coming weeks. Uh, we do have a lot to talk about, but before we do crack in, Jake, something from the weekend of footy you noticed? Well, it had to be the game of James Sicily, a, a player that's already been mentioned off the top here. It was, and I said this before we started, and no one gave me any pushback, which made me think <laughs> I must be right. So the caveat is that you're normally a... You're a midfield man. You yeah. love midfielders. You think midfielders... Um, 100%. You know, if, if, midfielders if, win your game. If it's, a, if it's a flip of the coin between a best on-ground performance between a key forward and a midfielder, you're going the midfielder every time. Pretty much, and I think most people go that way. It's not just the coaches' votes or the Brownlow medal or <laughs> anyone. I think that's just how we generally view it. If you're a great player, you go into the midfield. Right. Um, but I... And this isn't recency bias because I, you know, I was full of praise for Darcy Moore a couple of weeks ago against Carlton. Uh, and we've seen some great defensive efforts. And to your point about all these intercept guys, they it's way more noticeable now what these guys are doing. With all that said, I have never seen, ever in my time watching football, a more complete, impressive and influential game from a defender than what we saw from Sicily against the Saints. It was incredible. Just a couple, couple, quick stat line. So 43 disposals, 16 marks, 17 contested possessions, 650 metres gained, 11 score involvements, 22 intercept possessions, 4 contested marks. It was just a ridiculous performance that single-handedly won Hawthorne the game. And I guess when you say, well, what did I notice? It wasn't just that great game. It was the fact that a couple of those stats don't often go hand in hand. So it was actually the first time since the numbers have been kept that a player's had over 20 intercept possessions and over 10 score involvements. That's never happened before. I was going to say, so without knowing the stat that you were going to bring to the table, I was just going to ask Christian how that would rate for general and key defenders in terms of actual score involvements, because we've talked about scores from back halves and how I think they they might be on the up a bit uh, in, in recent years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, percentage-wise it is. I think because scoring's gone down, total points is probably right. around the same, but the percentage of scores from but, back half. But 11 score involvements from someone who plays predominantly in the back half seems quite high. Yeah, anything above... Uh, having a quick look, I think 7 or 8 would put you in elite bracket game, so it would put you in the you know top 10% game for a key defender. So yeah, to have um, over 10... So uh, Espe- Especially it- when you consider that the, the only... So Warple had 12, and then Day 11, Nash 10, Moore 9, Newcomb 8. They're, they're all in the midfield. So yeah. he, it's just crazy what he was able to do. Yeah, and you, you used the, I think you used the 20 and 10, um, 20 intercepts with 10 scoring involvements. I mean, I went down to 15 intercepts and 10 scoring involvements. That's only happened three times in history, and they were both in 2016 games, once by Daniel Talia and another by Brendan Goddard. So it's only the third time that someone's reached at least 15 intercepts and 10, and he's gone... As you said, the 22 intercepts that he took is the second so most. So surely that's got to be... I know everyone was, is still raving about Zach Butter's performance uh, a week and a bit ago, but that's got to be the that's the best game I've seen from anyone all year. Surely that's got to be the number one. I mean, it's if you look at for a key defender, so let's just start pure rating points. It was rated 51st best game for that's the season. A joke. So that's very low. Third highest of any key defender. So we know rating points do love you know guys that hit the scoreboard. So we talked about his score involvements, but I mean, score assist and goals are going to get you slightly more. So it's the third best game by a key, def- key defender this year. I mean, Sam Taylor got the most by a key defender in round five where he had 16 intercepps and uh, I think six intercept marks with 20 touches. 
But it is, and then you go to the other measure that we use, ranking points. It was the ninth highest ranking point game of anyone this season, the highest of any defender, let alone a key defender. Um, so again, yeah. So two measurements sort of comes up as a really high game, but again, yeah, it doesn't come up as a clear number one um, across either of those measures. Uh, just while we're on the Hawks, mm-hmm. uh, your man Punky uh, Bruce now one away from 500 goals, almost got there on the weekend. Almost, I was, I was. Riding, him. he had a few chances that he that normally he'd put away, but yet again, um, just understated brilliance. Like he just does it week in week out. And as I as I wrote last week, it is the fact that he is not and has never been a highlight real type player. Mm. Um, I imagine he will get to five hundred this week and deserves a huge celebration. They put a they put the a little graphic up in the corner as he was as he was uh, closing in on his five hundredth. Hawthorne, I think, have the has the case to be the the greatest Mount Rushmore. If you're putting a Mount Rushmore of a team together, <laughs> we have some of the before. names that were on that 500 got like he is going to join ridiculous company. And Franklin Dunstall truly believe he still doesn't get the credit he deserves. Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely, a, a magnificent effort. And you sort of wrote this in your six points column that you can read every Wednesday on ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL. But there aren't any players you'd want to be taking a shot from anywhere no. on the ground, especially with time expiring. And he had the responsibility to do that late in the game to put them up by I think just it was split by, by, the middle. Yeah, and and you just you just never in doubt yeah. that he's going to be the the guy that's going to um, seal the four points for the. Just Hawks. on Sicily, we we should also mention that not only was it a great game, all those numbers that we have uh, spoken about the last. But update five the minutes, ratings point stuff. Come on, but it is, and I think this is without question the greatest game anyone's ever played that'll result in a one week suspension. So he's not <laughs> going to play next week. So that's I don't know. It's 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 a shame. Do you? If you're an umpire and you you know that he's done that, you'll get the three still... votes, but also the yeah. red X. So it's um, what did you make of um? Actually, no, we'll get to this later. Don't worry about it. Uh, Christian, something you noticed from the weekend? Um, yeah. So I think two or three weeks ago, I think the headlines were how dire the uh, current situation was in the AFL West Coast. with, with oh. the bottom three teams, basically. Yeah, Hawthorne, North, West Coast, right it off, and basically on this podcast was it? was uh was sort of putting a, a sort of um an asterisk on the season, but. I think if you look the other way and you, you sort of look at the top of the ladder and the rest of the teams going around, I, I think we're at the most even um, even competition we've had at, at after 11 rounds. So if you have a look at Melbourne, they've got the highest percentage at the moment of 134%. That's the third uh, lowest of, a, you know, of the highest performing team at round 11 since 2000. But we've got 14 teams at least at 96% on the ladder, which is a world record at this time of year. So we've had 13 a few times here and there. But yeah, to sort of see 14 teams sort of you know, 96% means you're pretty close to being even on the season. Um, I don't. I, I just think, yeah, we, we're sort of, we have highlighted the bottom part of the ladder, but I don't think we've looked deeply enough at the top part of the ladder and thought there's probably, I know Collingwood's probably the best team in it, but there's probably still six or seven teams clustered in that top mm. group that you really can't separate at this time I, of year. I'm a bit sceptical with looking at percentage as a reason to say that it's an even playing field outside of the bottom three. Because we saw Carlton play. Carlton's lost five of its last six. The one win was West Coast by 100 points. That alone is the percentage of the five losses. I don't know. I, I, I tend to think... I, I agree that on any given day, any of the top 10 feel like they can beat each other. Yep. But I don't know. I feel like just looking at the percentage can be a bit misleading purely because a lot of the teams are taking a massive chunk out of those bottom three. Well, well, we say that, but North almost beat Sydney two weeks ago. Hawthorne's just had a win. So again, I think... Two in a row. Yeah, I think people sort of forget, well, you know, not forget, but sort of 
get hung up on yeah a couple of bad performances by West Coast and North and think they're getting beaten up every single week, but but they're not. So, so uh, sorry, Richmond currently in the bottom four have a percentage of ninety eight point four. That kind of stands out to me as, as something that's but a that, little bit out but of the box. Better percentage kinda... than GWS, Carlton, Gold Coast. Um, so yeah, but fit. Richmond rarely get smashed. This was the thing. Even when they were going through that period, where they were lo- they were they lose close games. ones. Yeah. They lose close ones. And this is slightly off topic, but this is why counting Tim Taranto out for the Brownlow Medal is a fool's errand. That they have been in most games. His numbers across the board, we know what umpires rate. Little bit off topic, little bit of a sidebar, separate discussion. Keep an eye on Tim Taranto for the rest of the year. We've had a few sidebar, separate discussions. Uh, already 12 minutes into this podcast. We haven't even got to the uh, main agenda yet. Something I noticed. Now, this is a little bit um, more left field compared to your sort of stats-driven stuff. But so Doug Nichols, the uh, Indigenous rounds over the two rounds. There have been some uh, wonderful displays of jumpers. We've seen some great celebrations. We've seen some great ceremonies. The Adam Good statue in Sydney. Some great stuff. Now, on Sunday at Adelaide Oval, uh, they did a smoking ceremony with some of the players before the game. Uh, so they're all lined up. They'd, they'd had the welcome to country, and um, uh, an Indigenous elder was sort of going around with some, some gum leaves or some eucalyptus leaves that were sort of smoking, and all the players were sort of washing themselves in, this, uh, in, in the smoke. It gets to Josh Rochelle, who's, who's, who's in the Adelaide lineup, and he's wafting the, the smoke towards him, and all of a sudden it bursts into flames, and he has to take a big step back because the, um, the, the leaves had actually caught fire. Did you see that? I did not see that. But it, uh, isn't he nearly it, lost his eyebrows. Isn't it supposed to be on fire? Or no, it's, it's just smoking? It's supposed to be smouldering and smoking uh, away. It's supposed okay. to, you know, it's just one of those, um, uh, one of those sort of traditional ways of, of doing things. And then, so he's gone to sort of wave it over himself. And he's it almost gotten burnt. <laughs> anyway. Maybe, maybe it's safer after the game. Um, yeah. Anyway, very dangerous. Yeah, it can be a little bit dangerous. Uh, playing with fire, you never, you never <laughs> sure how it'll go. Uh, main agenda for the week, players. So we talked about this last week, Jake uh, and Christian, that we were talking about players who had taken the next step in 2023. So those who had improved on their, you know, for instance, rating points, uh, their average rating points per game uh, compared to what they were doing in previous years. Uh, we came up with some some pretty interesting names. A couple of players who probably had down years the year before had sort of yeah. come back into form. You look at someone like Nick, Nick Haynes as one that stands out. Um, so we thought this week we'd go the opposite direction and look at players who may have regressed from some highs that we've seen in recent years and you've got some really interesting names here as well yeah so exactly similar to what you're talking about last week there's there's various reasons for um, why a player can drop off so and the same as why they can you know rise because they've previously been sub or change positions things like that so some of the drop-off players here they're all probably for all different reasons the number one drop-off player compared to last year in terms of rating points at the moment is chad wingard at Hawthorne. Got so again when you said chad w i must say <laughs> <laughs> not chad water chad wingard again I mean, not great. I mean, he's you know he's he's dropped off. I think about seventy or eighty percent from last year. But there it's was almost ga- not. A, it's not terrible for Hawthorne to do that because mm. we do know they're sort of moving on and sort of That's moving true. their list. He's been sub a couple of times. So but again, you want him to impact games. You do as want him to impact yeah. games. But in terms of you know, if he stands out as the number one dropped off player, it's not something that Hawthorne needs to look at. Do we need to fix him or anything? It's just how do we sort of integrate him in with the younger team that we've got going out there at the moment? There, there was a game earlier in the year where he wasn't the sub, and I. Honestly, didn't no- notice him playing until almost half time. Yeah, I just the um, the drop off from this guy is he like the potential he had and the expectation when well, his he, first couple of years at Port. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was sort of like you know could be one of the league's best kind of things. Um, then obviously he went to Hawthorne. Has had some some injury There's, issues. But. There is, and there was always one thing that stood out to me as a kid when he was interviewed. I think it was pre. 
pre-getting drafted, or it might have been just after he was drafted, he basically said he's, he's not a footy fan. He doesn't watch footy. He'd watch basketball. He never watched a whole game of footy. And to me, that sort of always stuck out in terms of, I've watched him play, and he's never really taken that next step and gone to the next level. I think he's just sort of comfortable in his own skin. He was happy to sort of produce mm. what he's produced. I don't think he's got, again, speaking from an outs- as an outsider and got no idea on it, mm. but I don't think he's got some of that drive that we've seen some of the other superstars of the competition have yep. to sort of go and study their game week in, week out, study the opposition, watch game tape and get better. I think Chad Wingard sort of just has relied on um, natural skill, which has, you know, got him 200 games or so. But So a few, couple of other names there that, that are kind of similar, not not so much that they, um, what you've been talking about, but similar in that they're getting towards the end of their career. So it's only natural to see a bit of a decline. Yeah, so fourth on the list is Lance Franklin, um, and just behind him is Jamie Elliott. So I know Jamie Elliott had a few injury-prone seasons, but um, again, sort of getting into that. Had a career-best year last year. Yeah, and and getting into that sort of elder statesman sort of role in the Collingwood forward line. So he's done his job, but yeah, sort of hasn't been as as high up as last year. And Lance Franklin, I mean, we've Mm. seen him even in the last couple of weeks, just doesn't look the same player. You're probably getting one out of three games from Bud where you go, oh, we still got it. But then he might have a game on the weekend where... That's been generous. He had two shots, he had a behind and had little impact on the Mm. game. Of course, the Swans still won. But Do you drop him? Franklin? No, I don't think you do. Because I think he still has the potential to kick five any given week. Does he, though? I think he'll kick a bag of four at least one more time this year. That's not five. I've changed the parameters. (laughs) What do you want me to say? Uh, Well, one player that I've noticed, and I haven't seen this list, don't know if they're on there, that I've probably noticed certainly in the last two years a bit of a drop-off um, Ollie Wines. Yeah, he hasn't made this list. He was, um, I think he was sort of lowish in the first half of last year and came back up um, mm. a little bit, but sort of not in the top 20 or 30 of the names I've, I've Just um, really feels out, like so. he's gone from clear-cut number one option at Port in the midfield mm. to, is he their third option now? Well, we'll talk about Port a little bit later. Actually, I want you to hold that exact thought because we will discuss that mm. exact point. Um couple of other interesting names on here, and you talk about the effect of the sub, but Noah Cumberland's on this list. Yeah, Noah Cumberland's one. Um, I mean, he was sort of, yeah, subbed in and out of the games last year, but we're sort of having a lot more impact in fourth quarters. There's a few games he came on and probably won him a, won him a few games with two or three goals in the final quarter. Um, not having the same impact um, this year as last year. And, and third on the list is Marby Chol, who's another one that's probably just been, it's, it's opportunity. I mean, he was put into a makeshift forward line with the Suns last year. Him and Levi Casbolt yep. did, did it pretty well with goal kicking last year? I'm I think they, sure I did. think they equal. Did him and Casbolt well, equal, or he might have just been on top? But yeah, again, bringing Ben King back into has probably meant Malby or Charles had to sort of re and we spoke about his this. role. I it's just been out spoke, of favour yeah, as well. Yeah. It was just going to be how they're going to. They can't play all three of them. How is it going to work? Yeah, uh, another one on this list, uh, Jake. He'll be uh, very sad to know because he featured on a list of yours at the start of the year. Oh jeez, uh, he was number fifty. George Hewitt. Mm. Yeah, um, disappointing. I I joked at half time in the Carlton Richmond game round one game one he was the Brownlow leader he was the best player at half time in that game since then he's been totally underwhelming it doesn't help that at times he's been used as the sub which that's a separate discussion yet again at the Carlton using these inside slow midfielders as uh, as their sub but just has not hit the heights of last season at all Dockers are they back Dockers, are they back? Is Are we changing topic here? Oh, we are, yes. <laughs> that was very abrupt from you. Normally, you're, normally you're smooth. <laughs> um, no. You're not buying I, it? I don't buy them. I don't understand all this hype on Frio. This feels very much like last year when everyone was saying that Frio is a genuine threat. And I know Christian was very much on the Frio uh, hype train. He was driving that train. <laughs> but 
I just didn't see it then and I don't see it now. So, okay, they've started scoring, which is what we've talked about uh, earlier in the year as mm-hmm. probably one of their, their biggest Achilles heels. So they've scored 100 points three of the last four weeks. Now beaten Melbourne at the G, which is a bit of deja vu because if you remember, they beat Melbourne at the yep. G last year too and it was kind of the same vibe where people sort of started saying, ooh, are they actual finals contenders Yeah, they now? were the team that and it started snapped something Melbourne's uh, winning streak. Correct, yeah. Um, so... I don't know. Is this the making of Frio, Christian? Jake's saying no, but but the stats are kind of starting to look and start to point, starting to point in the right direction. Well, one thing I like about Frio, and again, when you look at their numbers, is and I think it points to how well they are coached in terms of they. I think Longmuir has been there for three or four years now. And when he got in there, they were the best defensive team in the competition. They were the hardest team to score against. Only and that was pretty immediate, right? And it was immediate, and only Melbourne in their premiership year has been a better. Mm. Uh, be a better season defensively, so they've always had that that anchor. They, they don't they know what their game's built around, but they've slowly been able to change things. Even in even last year, going around a little bit through their clearance work and things like that, and then this year it's probably their slow ball movement that was sort of looked upon in the first half of the season. There was sort of um, a lot of handballing around in the back line and sort of sideways kicking and sort of going really really slow trying to move the ball forward. I think we've seen a, a, a big shift in the way they're moving the ball. Even just their kick to handball ratio, it's gone from. Uh, I think it was the second lowest in the first seven rounds to the third highest in the last four weeks. So to me, they seem to be very good at fixing the areas of the game that need to be fixed. And they're always tinkering with their game plan. And yeah, looking at their points for and points against, I think it's a big one for me. So points for rounds one to seven, that was 77 points per game. Um, and they've gone up to 101 points per game, which is first in the last four weeks. So usually you'd expect that Probably if you're trying to score more, you're going to sacrifice a little bit on the defensive end. But you look at their overall match score between the two uh, round periods. So rounds 1-7, to seven, the average match score was 168.7. Um, as I said, they've added, added almost 30 points to their own score. But the total match score has only gone up four points in total to 172. So mm. they've, kept the, they've kept the defensive mindset and been able to pile on the points. So, so, so to wh- me, again, I don't know if I'm jumping on the bandwagon, but I love looking at Frio because they seem to be able to tweak their game each you know, not each week. They're not sort of flipping and flopping, but after a three or four week period, they'll sort of summarise, all right, what do we need to do next? And they go out and get the job done. So why is that happening? It's not just a matter of, oh, we, we're now scoring more. It's what's allowing them to score? That's what I mean. Why, I think it's, it's, the ball movement, it's the, the, it's the ball movement. It's the kicking. They've, they've always, they were the third best kicking team for kicking efficiency and kick rating in the first seven rounds, but there was a lot of handball and a lot of sideways kick. They're kicking forward more and kicking at the same efficiency. So they've always been good ball users. Now I think they're using the more dangerous targets rather than going wide to uh, guys on the wing. I mean, their marks have gone up 20 marks per game. So they are sort of taking marks a lot longer, but they're sort of playing on a little bit quicker and just kicking the ball more forward. So it is, it's it's that, uh, probably that philosophy change in their ball movement that's probably been the, the, the key starter for it. Uh, accuracy helps as well when you're actually converting your chances in front of goal. Yeah, so they've, I mean, they were 49%, which was still, I mean, top eight. So they were seventh in the first seven rounds at 49%, but they're up to 57% now, which is first. So again, across the first four uh, last four weeks, that is. And we've talked about accuracy this year as a big bugbear of ours. Yeah, so the fact it, that they are able to be the number one team does help. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot to do with that. And again, against Melbourne, it was a bit part of the options they're choosing going forward. They're not sort of just bombing it in there. They're sort of hitting that short option. Um, getting They're very good at getting a guy... the. Uh, the ball in someone's hands about 60, 55 out from goal where you can sort of either take that 10 metres and have a shot or hit somebody up rather than trying to bomb it in from 80, 90 away. 
Jake, uh, Sean Darcy, though, a bit of a loss because he's been one of the better big men. I know your position on rucks and mm. it doesn't change all that often, but he's been one of the better big men and has allowed Luke yep. Jackson to play a role in which he's been thriving in. How Does does this change your thoughts at all about Freo in the coming weeks? Uh, it's a loss. I mean, just re- regardless of how I feel about uh, Ruckman, he's, he's been very solid for them. Of course it's a loss. Um They've got the bye this week. Uh, do we know how many games that uh, Darcy is expected to miss? Potentially three. Yes, games or weeks. Well, wow. because yeah. they've got the bye this week, and then the, so he may only miss two games. So if Richmond at Optus Stadium after the bye, which is they'll be favoured to win that game clearly, but it's not a gimme. Given we just said before, Richmond, Richmond don't get smashed. Giants at uh, Giant Stadium. And then uh, Essendon and Optus Giants Stadium. is a bit of a wild card. You're never quite sure what they're going to throw up. And the Bombers, yeah, kind of. And the Bombers, yeah. A bit yeah. more improved so, this year as well. So I guess if you look at it right right at this moment, Frio's ninth on the ladder, Geelong 10th. It's not to say that only one can go in, but I think everyone would say if one is going in, it's it's going to be Geelong. If they both go in, who are the two that are that are coming out? Well, you look at the other teams directly above them. So the, the Dons are in eighth. Um, yeah. No, Monty to... to to hold things together long enough, to mm. be honest. Um, and Adelaide Crows, who we've seen great strides from, but we talked about this, uh, well, I talked about this with Rowan Connolly on yeah. uh, his little video that we do every Monday. Good and video. he said that, that oh, was a good one. And he <laughs> he, he does, uh, he was talking about how they just sort of incrementally increase their wins every year. Crows. And, yeah, yeah, and they've already got six this year. Yeah, I think... Um, Finals would be a great, great result, but you just don't know, do you? Adelaide, Adelaide scares me more than Frio. Plain and simple. If it's if it's round twenty four and Adelaide's playing free on the winner's winner on a neutral site, I think Adelaide is the team I want to be on. Saints, dogs. Yeah, St Kilda is probably another one that probably doesn't. I don't, I'm not scared that much by the Bulldogs. Can be a bit inconsistent, but they do have plenty of match winners. Um, not quite sold on Freo yet. I know they got the buy this week, as we said, but probably want to see a couple more, string a couple more impressive performances together. So four in a row hasn't convinced you. What about eight in a row? We talk about a team like Port Adelaide and what they've been able to do since the now infamous Warren Treadray sledge about how Ken Hinckley's position is untenable. They've run, uh, they've rattled off eight in a row. They haven't lost. They haven't lost. Two but months. We talk about players that have sort of dropped off, and we looked at on that list was also Travis Boak. You talked about Ollie Wines. Hmm. They're getting more out of other players, It's almost a good thing with... Maybe not so much Wines, but I I don't think anyone expected Boak. If if Boak was going to be one of their best players this year, that was always going to be a concern. It's not a... But instead, it's Butters, it's Rosie, it's other guys that are now stepping up, and we're seeing the the now generation for Port Adelaide uh, putting in match-winning performances. 100%. And, um, yeah, Port Adelaide was... I, I think I've said on this podcast a couple of times, certainly going back to last year, the, the two teams I was super confident would be f- finishing top eight this year were Carlton and Port Adelaide. And all off-season, I was so confident. And then I got to the starting and I thought, is Port going to do it? I started to doubt Port. I never doubted Carlton. And look how that's turned out. Port, Port is... Talking about match winners and players and the way they play, and it's the, the whole philosophy and love of Ken Hinckley and the way in which they go out there and play for him. And you've said that you, if you were a player, he's the guy you'd be you'd want to suit up for. Absolutely, without a doubt. I think Ken Ken is a Ken is a players coach, and he and you look at the way that he sort of you know put his arms around Jason Horn Francis when he needed to. The way he just communicates, he's on the bench constantly, never demonstrative, always speaks so highly of his players. I think he is 
he's probably the the coach that I would most want to play for in, in the AFL. Would you have said that eight weeks ago? Uh, I I never I've never doubted Ken. Yeah. I've never I've never been such a Ken doubter. I know that that fans can get frustrated, but for, as a as a non fan looking in from the outside, Ken's Ken's a great coach. So the question is. Um, obviously, Port hasn't made a grand final under Ken Hinckley, which is part of the A lot reason. of teams haven't made grand finals. Tough to make. No, no, they haven't. But to, to have coached a team for 10 years, and I am I am on your side. I think you go back to... The, have they made three prelims under, under Ken? I think you can almost say, well, it's not so much, oh, they failed. It's like, well, they hit the, hit the ceiling of what they could have achieved with that playing group. Can they, can they go a step further this year? Do the numbers say they... They can. Are they actually in the mix? They are. So the interesting way to look at Port Adelaide, I mean, that round two game against Collingwood just distorts their numbers, something shocking. I think they, they conceded 135 points, which is, you know, a lot more than any other game. They were negative uh, 40 or 50 for contested possessions and just blown away completely off the park after after smashing Brisbane in round one. So basically, if you, if you look at Premiership Standard Report, which is the key metrics that are past premiers have ranked in the top six in and sort of what metrics you need to sort of be in the top six in to get that premiership success. You take out the round two game um, from the season or take out all of round two. And the only other, other loss was the showdown round three, right? It was, it was the very next week. But you include that in and just take sort of just take round two out of the numbers and look at the whole competition. They're the only team, Port Adelaide, that ranks... There's, there's nine key stats where at least nine of the ten... Nine of the last ten premiers have been in the top six in. So of those, of those nine key stats... Collingwood are top six in eight of them. Port are top six in nine of them. And the only team that are in top six in all nine of those stats. So the things that we look at, you know, how, how good you are defensively, how good you are at moving the ball, how good you are at restricting opposition ball movement, they're ticking all of those boxes at the moment. So massive in That's terms of their, really their game style is is sort of stacking up there for premiership stands. One other one I've looked at, though, is their, their record in close games. We spoke about it against mm. Collingwood last year where it's luck and things like that. What I've done is I've, I've looked at the last 20 premiers and how many close home and away games they were involved in in that season leading up to their premiership. Never Usually around three to four close games, and in close games I'm using a 10-point margin or less. As I said, Porter 5 and Zip in those games. I think we've only seen two or three premiers involved in six or seven of those games across their home and away season. So to be 5-0 and in those games halfway through the season, it's a, it's a tick. You're getting the four points each time. Mm-hmm. But is it too close, you know, that that they're not putting the opposition away like other premiership teams have done in the past. You talked about the prelims, so three prelims in the time under Hinkley. Losses by three, three, I think so. Three points loss, a six-point loss, and they got smoked by the dogs in uh, 2021. But if they can start winning the close ones in prelims, that's that's the next step. I just... it Look, we've talked about this on the podcast, and you're talking to, to Carlton fans who have not seen anything closer than a semi-final for 20-odd 20, 20 years, right? <laughs> it is tough to win a flag. It is tough to make yep. a grand final. I think when you've got a coach that the players love, clearly, Cat um, has shown that he can put the runs on the board. I think you've, you've got to you've got to stick with him unless he wants to leave. Um, so yeah, Hinkley, Port Adelaide, very interesting eight in a row. Uh, we we'll have to keep a close eye on those. Jake mentioned it a little bit before, but a um, bit of a, a tenuous link. But a bit happening in the MRO this week. Uh, and there's going to be a few players that go to the tribunal. We're mm. recording this Tuesday morning, so you may know the outcome of this sort of stuff uh, before you've listened to this podcast. So apologies in that regard. Um, but firstly, now one of your your six points for this week in your column, like I said, ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL hasn't been written yet, mind you. <laughs> Great. Well, don't change it because I've already I've already pumped you up. Uh, the flop chat. So a bit of flopping happening, uh, especially by one yeah. St Kilda key forward who mm. you're not very happy with. Max King, well, no, I wasn't happy with. 
Oh, you are happy with it? I am all for Bombshell. it. Bombshell. Yeah, you got to yeah. read it. Keep an eye at ESPN.com.au. So, all the all the chatter uh, in the aftermath of the double 50-meter penalty, which is really 52-and-a-half-meter penalty, was that Max King flopped. Now, there's a couple of things here. I don't know that he definitely flopped. The first one uh, was James Blank, and he shoved him in the chest. King wasn't even looking at him. So it's one thing if he's looking at him and goes there. He wasn't actually looking at Blank when he was hit, fell to the ground, 50-meter penalty. Then as he's walk- as the umpire is marching him towards the goal, uh, Sicily, who we have... He's got. He's had a, quite a few uh, mentions I, on I this podcast. I rate it too. Seriously. I rate the uh, the second bump. See, it's a. It's whether you want to call it smart or savvy. He knew that there nothing else could come from it, and he just gave him an elbow to the chest again. King went down another fifty, which, uh, as I said, didn't was not make a difference. So straight after that, everyone's saying, "Oh, Max King's flopping." All of this sort of stuff. It should, you know, it should be a free kick to Hawthorne. Um. I totally disagree. I've always hated the that kind of fake macho garbage of hitting players and pushing and shoving and just it's just nonsense. It's, it's not needed in the sport at all. It's the only, it's really the only sport that we see it in. Um, so I am of the belief that that's the sort of stuff that we should be getting rid of. We should stamp that sort of crap out of the game. So if a player is doing that. And they want to go, and and the op, and the player that they hit falls to the ground. Why should they be penalised? Even if they're exaggerating contact. But can you actually say that he's exaggerated contact? Yeah, I think so. But but I know I see your point. I, I I think that the move it's always like um it's like you want to punish the retaliator in this case. But it's like no no if don't you, if you're, give the umpire yeah. a reason to pay a free kick or the fifty meter penalty. I agree. The the fake macho crap is is a bit. Is a bit. It's unusual. gone too far. It's so silly. How do you feel? So we talk about flopping, but what about flopping in a marking contest, over exaggerating? Not okay with that. That's a little bit different because that is trying to. That's really trying to coerce the umpire into paying a free kick when you you don't. So what about Cody Waitman? So Cody Waitman has been a little bit of a culprit, and people will say um, similar thing with Jack Ginevan, the the head high stuff. Ginevan's an interesting one because. You watch a lot of them, and he seems it seems to happen just about every time he gets the ball and goes to ground. But they all feel like they should be free kicks. But the with Waitman, half of them, it's like you've got to stay on your feet. You're throwing yourself forward with almost no... Mm. You're, you're just trying to convince the umpire to pay a free kick there. and Got six points for his team, didn't he? That's totally different to the, I've just been shoved, and... I fall down and I, and they pay a fifty. But you I, was, can't... I was a little bit like you on the Cody Waitman one. I would not pay that a free kick. I don't want that paid as a free it kick. And I think the umpire got it wrong. But I do look at Ben Long and think, well, you had your arms around. You were you had your arms out and yeah. around him, and and Waitman took advantage of that yeah. and leaned into it. But again, I watched exactly what you were saying. Sort of, I watched Ben Long and I'm like, well, you shouldn't be able to do that. You're not allowed to have your arms around a bloke. The ball. The ball wasn't yeah. in play. It was still at the stoppage, and he just sort of put his arms up under his armpits and was annoying him. And I think Waitman outsmarted him. But again, I'm I'm looking at it. In, it's it's. Tri- and if I'm looking at it as a coach, I'm saying to Ben Long, one step back, please. Just don't put your arms anywhere around his head area or his body when the ball's not there. So, yeah, again, there is some times where a player will sort of you know exaggerate the contact, but it's because I think the act you know, and same as J- the James Blank act, you just don't go and shove a player in front of the umpire because if he is going to embellish the the. Yeah. The contact, you're going to give away a 50. Uh, I know Champion Data likes to, to plot um, points on, a, on on the ground in terms of like where kicks go and, and all that kind of stuff. The 50 metre, 
against uh, who was it against? Was it against Ben Ainsworth also in that game? Uh, Yes, in the center. Yes. center. Yeah, in the in the well, yeah, Not closest back on off the wing. The mark, yeah. Do you, do you plot where he was on the mark and compared to where the mark was called? No, but we noticed. I noticed that also. We plot where the mark is taken. Yeah. Where the mark is set is another story. Mm. We've noticed. I've noticed that a lot of the times where a guy will take a mark, and then the opposition player will run right up to that spot and stand on it, mm. and the guy will have to go back five meters. And this is going back a few years. Watch Sam Mitchell when he used to take a mark. He never used to take a step back. And the man on the mark was just forced to line up three or four metres ahead of where the ball was actually marked. You're just gaining three metres. Yeah, but Sam Mitchell was smart. He Basically, when he took a mark, he just sort of of stood there and made you stand the mark in front of him. But it was sort of like, well, that's not where the mark was taken. So it is. I I wonder if we are big on the inside 50. He clearly marked it inside 50. But if the umpire sets the mark outside 50... That's the only time we have to move our dot. But other was than that, actually, we trust where he took the ball. There was one I saw this week I hadn't seen all year. I can't remember the last time I saw it, where um, someone was taking a shot for a set shot for goal, kicked it, but and I think it was Sicily again. <laughs> so he, that's like the f- where <laughs> he's, he's jumped. He's jumped over the the mark and the but he kicked the goal and the umpire said it's. It's basically if he hadn't have kicked it, that would have been fifty. But yeah. they pay the goal anyway because he kicked it. Because he because he stayed. He, and then he jumped. Bad radio, but he but he jumped from behind the mark was his logic. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't that was does sound like a silly sure thing, it was. doesn't it? God, he had a game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just another word. I know we're running short of time. We've still got some uh, other bits and pieces to get to. Uh, the Zorko eye gouging incident. Yeah, um, something else. I'll be I'll one hundred percent be writing about in my column this week. Did not love that look at all. Um, Fantastic player, Dane Zorko, clearly um, a, a, a great of the Brisbane Lions, but just don't like the way he plays. And I think we've seen enough. He's made effort. a habit of some too many things. dodgy too moves. Many, he's crossed far too many lines yeah. and um, didn't like that at all. It was so unnecessary. And the fact that that resulted in a one-game suspension, and again, we don't know what may happen in the next 24 hours, but as did Rory Laird's tackle on Lockie Neal, dangerous tackle, they're just it's just not right there's something fundamentally wrong with the the judicial system as is currently constituted uh do you think Laird will get off i hope he does Chera? Yeah. um to be honest i i don't think either of them deserve to be suspensions but if one will it probably will be Chera. Chera. i think Laird Laird yeah. almost looked to cushion him almost he did neil had an arm free he he didn't th- like dump him or sling him and with these kind of things I really do think that um, record should play a big, uh, a significant Clean part. record. Yeah, and you look at the difference between someone like Rory Laird and so and, and Dane Zorko, two totally different records. Rory Laird should be able to walk in with his stats. He said, I had 16 tackles. I had 16 yeah. legal ones. Yeah, like, I've, I've how many has he had this year? How many has he had the last yeah. three years? And none of them have been dangerous. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I tend to agree. I think that if you're looking at someone who has taken heed of what the MRO and the AFL has handed down in terms of guidelines for tackling, I would look at that tackle and say, he's learned something. It's not like he's going in there slinging. There's no two motions. It just seemed a little bit unfortunate. Anyway, we digress, and you probably already know if you're not listening to this, or if you're listening to this after the uh, the tribunal sitting on Tuesday night. Uh, something we've been doing this year, the one telling stat from every game, go through every game, look at uh, where it was won or lost for one or both of the sides. Christian... Carlton and Sydney up at the SCG on Friday night. Uh, what does the eye test tell you? That Carlton's ball use is hor- horrific, uh, and the stats seem to back it up. Yeah, so, I mean, just on that one game, the expected scores was the very easy one. So Carlton just couldn't kick a goal to save themselves. So negative 22 points for expected scores was the fifth worst game this season. 
Um, but to finish with what 51 points, I think they finished with was the lowest score of anyone that's missed 20 points. So some of the other inaccurate teams are still kicked, you know, 90 points instead of 110. Uh, but Carlton finished with 51. But one I looked at is, it, and it's probably more of a, a season-long thing that I looked at, is Carlton, we look at rating points that a, a player can win. So you can win your rating points from ball use, ball winning, defensive stuff, and things like that. So I looked at Carlton in terms of, for their ball winning this year, they're plus 27 rating points in total, which is... I think the eighth best of any team, so sort of in the top eight comfortably there. For their ball use, they're negative 75 rating points, and I think it was a about a 30 differential to Sydney on the night. So, again, on Friday night, Carlton won. They, they sort of won the ball winning. They were able to win the ball more, and they've been able to do that against Collingwood in, in previous weeks, but it's their ball use that's killing them. So, as I said, the, the differential for ball use of 75 rating points is, is ranked 14th in the comp. I think the only four teams below them are... Gold Coast, Hawthorne, North and West Coast. So they're sort of sitting down with those teams mm, in terms of their, their actual use of the ball. Uh, Saints and the Hawks, bit of a nice win for the Hawks. Just a bit more nourishment. You talk about oh, I everyone James beats Sisley West Coast. Well this <laughs> <laughs> you talk about how everyone beats West Coast and Hawthorne went down to Launceston and smashed West Coast the week before. But mm. to back it up, and against a side that, you know, obviously top eight, but yeah. defensively quite stout, I thought was really impressive. And and they were in the, it was a really tight game throughout the whole whole way. And I just thought St. Kilda's going to put like their, St. Kilda did. St. Kilda were yeah. going to run out the game, which they've, they've, they've run out games very, very strongly. So uh, Hawthorne actually outscored them from the 20-minute mark of the final quarter. So three goals to zip. Um in red time in the fourth quarter. That's the first time St. Kilda, or second time St. Kilda's lost that uh, time period in a game this season. And I think they lost the other one by five points against Port mm. in round seven. To be outscored three goals in the final, you know, five or ten minutes of the game is just un-St. Kilda-like. But yeah, Hawks were able to put their foot down. And uh, we've spoken about James Sisley and how in, uh, good an individual game it was. But I sort of looked at all the other numbers and there's just a whole lot to celebrate in terms of from that stat seat. So John Newcombs had uh, 31 disposals, nine clearances, Will Day, uh, I know you guys wrote about him yesterday. His eight turnovers probably hurt him a little bit, but still had the 30 really disposals. Good. He's, he's and, been really good this and season. The, and it's where he's winning the ball. For, he, he wins it from really contested areas and takes it out into space that, That's uh, That's the next well. step for him. We talk about how now gathering the footy, he makes good decisions. You can tell that he's he's a guy that's starting to realise what his body can do. Yep. The next step is just to clean up a little bit more, especially going inside 50. Or, couple. And you look at Bont's start of his career, you let them go for it because eventually they're going to start coming off. And Bont was always like that for the first two years. You thought, geez, he's trying to do a bit too much. But mm, I think it's yeah. that license you give him of you know what he's going to be in six years' time. Yep. So you let him do that in yeah. his first two or three years. Uh, and Dylan Moore had 31. Um, so as I said, yeah, just a whole lot of individual efforts where you look at Hawthorne and go, yeah, they've got a really they've good making of a really a good, good core midfield between sort of that 21 and 24. Even Connor Nash is only 24. Feels like he's been playing for quite a while as well. There's a lot to be excited about, I think, if you're a Hawthorne fan, particularly in that midfield. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Frio, we talked about Frio and how probably accuracy really helped them uh, on the weekend against Melbourne. Um, They're a bit of a slow start still. The yeah, so uh, lost the first quarter again. So they're 1-10 and 10 in first quarters this year, which is the worst uh, record in any individual quarter of any team uh, this year. Mm. So I think I, I think it's equal. West, I think West Coast a couple of one court, one wins in a couple of their quarters. But yeah, just, just can't get games started really, really well. So that's probably one of the issues for them. But it's the second year in a row they've beaten Melbourne in a very same way. They know Melbourne's very strong in the contest. Um, they tried to match it even in there, but when they get the ball out in space, they're really able to spread Melbourne and sort of... It wasn't playing keepings off, because as I said, they, they they still are using the ball uh, and getting it into dangerous positions. But if you look at uh, your percentage of possessions that you won from either a contest or uh, uncontested, 
Frio's percentage of uncontested possessions was 10% higher than Melbourne, which was one of the biggest differentials uh, in a game this year. Um, so, again, it was the ability for Frio to, when they had the ball, they were able to find space and chip it around, whereas when Melbourne got the ball, that was just contest after contest after contest. Uh, we haven't even talked about the Giants win, but that was very impressive against the Cats, Jake. It was. Unexpected. Toby Green, 200th. Just a vintage Toby Green performance. You just knew he was going to stand up for that. Yeah. Now, three in a row against the Cats down there. Didn't know that. I, I, I couldn't remember. I remember one of them, but I didn't know they'd won three. That's That's unheard of, isn't it? Yeah, Always. it is. I think they're the only team to win more than one in a row down there at the moment, so besides Geelong. <laughs> um, something about that game that I noticed, uh, and, and your stats back it up too, is just the ability for the Giants to find space on such a narrow ground, especially forward of, of halfway, was actually well, quite that, notable. Well, that's the thing. Do, do cl- basically, the clubs now look at the Giants as the blu- blueprint for how to beat. I know the Cats have some issues and they're, they're basically missing their midfield at the moment yeah. but yeah. do you look at the way they play or is it more I, just the I style think so we- but then I look at Geelong's defence and it was just so undermanned and it, it just didn't perform well so I know that uh, De Conning with his mask on I think he played a little bit forward and a little bit back Radagalia got subbed off uh, with a hamstring injury but I mean the Giants kicked 67 points from set shots so they kicked 10-7 from set shots Two goals, one from the rest of it. So they so were just getting good looks inside. Exactly, 50. it's just unheard of to have you know seventy or eighty percent of your your complete score from set shots. So they were able to sort of line them up and yeah have have, have time and take shots. I think it was just Geelong's defence just getting picked apart um, a little bit too easy, which you don't usually see happen uh, to Geelong. Um, do we have a stat on players in um, milestone games? Oh, yeah, there was. A, I'll get, I'll get the numbers up quickly. We had a quick look at uh, teams that. How well teams perform when you have a 100-game player playing for you, 200-game player, 300-game player. Basically, good teams win, bad teams <laughs> don't. It's, it's very similar to the overall winning uh, percentage. But again, um, a lot of good teams have probably had, you know, Hawthorne, Collingwood, Sydney's in the last uh, 10 or so years have had more 300-game players than anyone else. There was one interesting one, though, University, if we go back all the way down to there. <laughs> they only had one player reach a milestone game, and they got beaten by 50 points in that, which is what it's... It ends up being Probably the worst, a good result for them. the worst differentially milestone game. So I, I can't remember the the guy's name, but uh, yeah, they definitely let him down in uh, back in nineteen fourteen. Here's one from Sir Swamp Thing uh, <laughs> earlier today, actually. So Brent Harvey in career milestone game. He won them all, didn't he? He uh, number one win, number fifty win, one hundred win, one fifty win, two hundred win, two fifty win, three hundred win, three hundred twelve, which was the most outright games for North. Win three fifty win, four hundred win, four twenty seven, and final game win. I do remember seeing that maybe when he got to around three, 300, 350 or something. Yeah, that's crazy. That's good, isn't it? That's a good stat. Um, there you go. It's just one thing. Uh, Gold Coast of the Dogs. Ooh, gee, that was a... I don't know. The Suns. Where mm. are they? Still not at Where are they? They're, they're about where we thought they'd be. Are you right about them as well this week? Uh, I think I might. You've given everything away wow. this week. Okay. I think they're... They, where are they? They're exactly where we thought they'd be. They're... A game outside of the eight, they're thereabouts. Do we think that they can make it? I don't know. I don't think so. But what I will say is, yes, I know I bang on about the midfield a lot. Miller has not been playing. If you is is there a better midfield trio in the AFL than Miller, Raul, Anderson that complement each other as well as those three when they're all playing? I don't know that there is. It's a good question. It's no disrespect to someone like Jack Viney. I don't know. I just don't. I don't know if there's a trio that is as good and complement each other as well. Now, yes, there's twenty 
there's there's a lot more that they need to go right in order to, to make finals. But I think they can. I think there's enough talent there. We spoke about Charlie Ballard as the number one intercept marker. Uh, ben King has come back in and looks looks fresh and looks strong again, and he's he's dominating that forward line. I don't know. I just feel like they're 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 at a point now where, and this is a each year we sort of say this, but are they at that stage where they can one more scalp, one more upset, and they're right in contention? Yeah, one one more A grade player in the off season, I think, and 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 they're they're legitimate sort of top eight, top six chances. Where what what kind of player? They they need that, that's a another great question. Forward? I just think they need they just need someone like when Lockie Neal was like, oh, I'm going to go to Brisbane after you know they've had a few terrible years. They 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 got him in. They got Lincoln McCarthy, who's one of his good friends in, and then they started to attract players like Joe Danaher. Mm. And I think that if the Suns can attract one genuine A grade, so player, you think they need? Because I mean, I don't think many people rated Lockie Neal as highly as I did at that time but like you're talking about a top 10 player yeah top but, 15 sort of minimum but, but player you, you like, think of you think of who, a top who 10 who could, who could go to you know Collingwood and you go yeah that's plausible but yeah. you, you go Gold Coast yeah so I think if they can work on getting someone in the door I don't know though who, who it might be or how they might do I'm it I'm just not sure they can do I'm just not sure who it anyway be. we're losing, yeah. we're losing yeah. track and we've got to we've got to skirt through this stuff just, just a quick one on Gold Coast very much reminding me of Adelaide last year and a big thing I was on about Adelaide last year is they were hard to play against they did not give you easy ball Gold Coast for the last five weeks have been great to watch in terms of they haven't quite got you know they're not they're not at the top end talent of skill and I think they're 17th for moving the ball from one end to the other so they're sort of down for their own ball movement but they're just hard to play against. They they make a contest. They made the Bulldogs sort of work very, very hard for all their possessions. A few weeks ago, they did that to Melbourne. I know they didn't get the result, but I was watching the Gold Coast-Melbourne game just thought, geez, Melbourne just didn't have any easy possessions. No. So, again, Gold Coast are building around, very similar to Adelaide, that the defence is there. They're, they're going to be hard to play against. They just need to add a little bit of class. We've seen that with Adelaide this year. It takes them to the next level. Uh, something from that game before we move uh, on? Yeah, so again, it was probably... Um, what I was just talking about, that the Bulldogs, just how hard it was for the Bulldogs. So even if you look at their retention rate when they kicked inside 50, they were the lowest for the round. So I think they won the inside 50 count across the game, but just, yeah, retained it with only 36% of their kicks. But you look inside um, inside the forward 50, and the Bulldogs had, I think it was 54 disposals inside 50, 31 kicks and 23 handballs. So that's getting the ball and sort of flipping it around and trying to get it into space and sort of not getting a clean shot of goal. Whereas Gold Coast got it inside 50, they had 30, 32 kicks and seven handballs. Um, and obviously their, their disposal efficiency inside forward 50 was 67%. The Bulldogs were 57%. So it was just, yeah, just making it hard for the the Bulldogs were able to get the ball into a scoring position, but they weren't able to get any clean shots on goal just because Gold Coast, yeah, kept putting up the fight. There you go. Uh, Bevo's um, wristbands didn't all work out for the Dogs. Uh, West Coast and Essendon, we've got to sort of whip through these now, but the, the Dons, they won the ball in the middle. They won the ball in the back half and they scored. I'm hearing, yeah, I'm hearing, you know, West Coast showed a little bit more life than usual. But again, if you talk about the stats that you can walk out of, so walking out of your back 50 uh, was the most points scored from the defensive 50 for the round. Walking out of centre clearances was the most points scored from centre bounce clearances for the round. And just clearances in, in total, they were able to waltz out of there and score the most points from clearances per round. So still a few issues. I think that the score margin made West Coast look a bit good, but... In terms of the way Essendon was able to score from all those uh, the, all those sort of areas, it was just a little bit too easy for them. I think in general, Jake, um, you just anyone that plays West Coast, you're probably learning more about West Coast than you are about any other team at this point. Now, West Coast obviously have their their issues, but you can't look at 
what Essendon did and think, oh, that's a genuine, you know, finals contender. You look at Carlton a few weeks ago. No. Kernow kicks nine. You can't go, oh, Carlton the back. Like, you're learning more about the, the Eagles than you are about any other team. Oh, it's them. almost, you just strike a line through it. It doesn't really tell you much. Uh, Power, we touched on them earlier, but they were uh, really strong um, oh. in terms of getting the ball in the forward line. Close game, but yeah, looking at the numbers, I mean, just straight inside 50, 67 to 45. It was a smashing um, plus 15 minutes 50 in their time in forward half. So we know Port want to sort of establish forward half territory and dominance and sort of base their game off that they were able to get that going all game long so um yeah only, only a seven point win uh, but as i said yeah the number one for midfield contested possessions for the week number one for inside 50s time in forward half it's all that it's all the areas that port want to base their game on they just sort of the inaccuracy cost them Collingwood probably really didn't get out of third or fourth gear, but North gave it a red-hot shake, especially late in the game. Um, their pressure was up. They managed to score late. Yeah. Um, probably not ideal for the Pies. Probably thought they could bank a little bit more of a win. But. Yeah, who else? I can't remember who else. I was doing another game at that same time, so I can't remember which game was on, uh, was on the Adelaide Sunday. Brisbane. But I was sort of, yeah, sort of keeping an eye on it, thinking, well, Collingwood is going to kick away here. Collingwood is going to kick away eventually. And then so when I had a look, and one of the ones I just looked at is just the pressure numbers quarter by quarter for North Melbourne. So the start of the game at 152, uh, second quarter, they're up to 171. Third quarter, up to 172. You'd expect a young team to drop off. They finished at 197 in the fourth quarter. So they, they they stayed in the game. I was, you know, a bit worried that that could have been a bit of a messy result. But, you know, they won the clearances by two. They were pretty even and contestable. And as I said, then their pressure just kept getting up as the game got along. So I think North have, yeah, a, I think a few a, good signs from that game. Yeah, that's a tick, I would say. Jordan Degoe, Brownlow, Smokey, Chance? It definitely. Um, I think he's a clear lock in the mid-year All-Australian team. He's playing... He's coming uh, out tomorrow as well. I think he's been Collingwood's best player through uh, the first half of the season. Um, with all... Res- you know, fully respecting what Nick Dacos has done, I do think Dugowie's been the difference maker. Um, kicking a goal a game, 25 touches, and just doing it through the midfield now, and consistently, that's what we- has probably always yep. been the knock on him. So, And we yeah. were just talking about, I was talking about Will Day before, getting it from contest and getting it out into space. Chad Warren has always been, you know, big on that in terms of getting it out the front of the stoppage. So Straight lines. Yeah, and that's what the goal he's been doing at the moment. He's equal seventh in the comp for disposal across the last four weeks, but his kicking efficiency of 72, uh, 70% um, is the highest best of the of top. Best of his career? And it's, yeah, the best of his career and the highest of the top 10 or top, I think it was the top 18 contested ball winners in that mm. time. So he's winning a lot of contests, and then he's just hitting the target perfectly on the outside. Uh, and really quickly, uh, Adelaide and Brisbane. Brisbane just couldn't score. Well, that was a really tough watch, that game. That, <laughs> that was probably, and again, when I look at it, it was the highest contested possession rate in a game this year. So there was just no easy ball for any team. There was no switches. There was um, a lot of long down the line stuff. But yeah, I had a look at it, and it was yeah basically the highest rate of contested possessions in a game this year. There was just... I don't know who brought. I think I think it was Brisbane were just trying to sort of uh, not allow Adelaide to get that spread and run going, but it was just played up and down one wing for a whole quarter and a half there, basically. So um, tough watch, but as I said, yeah, highest contested possession rate, most stoppages in a game this season. Um, I think it was the fifth most secondary stoppages, and um, I think it was yeah the equal fewest uncontested possessions won across the game this year. So yeah, just a really tough Sunday afternoon. Uh, we're getting into red time of this podcast, sponsored proudly by Subway. Jake, I believe you have a is the hype justified or is it hyperbole statement for me? I do. Uh, is it time that we bring in a mid-season trade period? Justified, I think it is. I think uh, who loses out of a mid-season trade period? You look at players like, you talk about Marby or Chol, can't get a look in at Gold Coast. Maybe he would have some value to someone who's lacking a, a key forward. You look at Alex Sexton, one of your favourite fringe mm. players at the Suns, Jake. Uh, would someone be interested in taking these kind of guys? I think if you're a contender, 
right? And you need some something filled. You need a backup somewhere. You need a ruckman or whatever it is. You're willing to say, well, I'll part with overs. I'll part with my first round of this year to a yep. lower ranked team. The lower ranked team gets a better Which draft a hand. It's a win-win. Yeah. Players who, like Paddy Dow, for instance, might be able to request a trade. Someone would take Paddy Dow, I feel, and, and try and and try and get the best out of him. And so players can win. I know Paddy Dow's doing well in the twos, but if you're a contender, I don't think Paddy Dow's If, you, if you're severely yet. lacking in the midfield. Regardless, then I think that if players want to go, you can, you know, players players win. Um, yeah. I just don't see any any downfall. I think it feeds yeah. the media machine. Like, yeah, we're selfishly going to get a, a bit out of this, but I think, uh, why not? Give it a go. Yeah, I I can see that point. I'm, I'm not too fussed either way on it. I guess the only thing I don't love is the fact that a player can join a team halfway through the season and win a premiership. I think it should be the team that you start the year with is your team. And you shouldn't be able... I don't, I don't particularly like... It's the one thing I don't love about... American sports where it's kind of players constantly coming in and out you Play don't know one who's game, there and then ring. it's just like oh, I won a ring and it's just like well did you? Uh, let us know what you think at Footy Tips on Twitter Jake Darcy Moore should be the All-Australian captain um, yeah well our, as you said our All-Australian team mid-year is coming out tomorrow Wednesday, Wednesday and uh, slightly early mid-year All-Australian we do slightly know slightly early yeah um, I think I'm it might be a bit of a spoiler but he's our captain there you um, go. And I think he deserves to be. It's not just what he's done um, leading Collingwood to the top of the ladder after 11 rounds in his first season as captain. It's the way in which he conducts himself on and off the field, I think, deserves an enormous amount of uh, credit. There are a few a few captains. A few skippers that, in there. That, yeah, Sicily I mean, we talked about. Sicily, yeah. Toby Green, Some <laughs> there's some calls for him. Um, but I think Moore is the player that uh, deserves it right now and, and should be the captain. Uh, and Charlie Cameron can win the Coleman Medal. Christian, you look at the numbers every year with small forwards. And, can and this is a will? This is a he regular, will win the Coleman. Medal. He, he won't because I'm hoping he does. I've been. I think I spoke about it the first year or second year we had the pot. I'm, I'm waiting for a non-key forward to win the Coleman. I think it'll be an exciting season of football to watch someone sort of win the goal kicking without it. He's a chance, but I just feel like yeah, I just feel like there's always a key that ends up on it's top. Kind of crazy that we're talking about. We're like we're even entertaining this as a possibility given where we were four or five weeks ago with Jeremy Cameron kicking 100. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Uh, I reckon we asked that question about Charlie Cameron most years. Charlie Cameron, I reckon we asked about Bailey Fritch one year. <laughs> <It> just <laughs> uh, Apologies, we have run a little bit long on this podcast, but thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we'll be back next week, but in the meantime, if you want to get in contact with us, you can find us at Footy Tips on Twitter. Uh, we'll take your questions, your comments, your feedback. Uh, Jake especially, we'll be happy to respond to you. Uh, no Jake, worries. thanks for joining me. Christian, good to speak with you again. To everyone at home, we will speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.